This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we bring in one of NetApp's performance gurus, Mr. Tony Gaddis, to chat about how you can quickly and efficiently understand and isolate performance bottlenecks. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi, Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. I'm Justin Parisi. And with me today on the phone is the incorrigible Glenn Sizemore. How are we doing, Justin? Doing super. Thanks for asking. So Glenn is uh, remote today, uh, but in the studio today, we have a very special guest to talk to us about on tap performance, Mr. Tony Gaddis. Hello. Hi. Glad to be here. Excellent. So, Tony Gaddis, uh, tell us what you do here at NetApp and um, a little bit about, like, I guess, how we can get in t- contact you if we wanted to. Okay. Well, let's see. The contact is easy. I'm Gaddis at NetApp. That no be... social media or Twitters or anything? Oh, no. I'm no. afraid I don't have okay. enough time to That's do that. probably but a good thing, but go ahead. G-A-D-D-I-S at NetApp.com. Um, let's see. I'm right now a principal performance architect. I've been with NetApp for about 11 years. Uh, for about the first six years, I managed the R&D development that went into uh, performance and the parallelization of ONTAP and uh, sort of got it set on its foundation to uh, use all the cores that uh, Intel keeps giving us. And certainly we've been able to scale across our products pretty well. I mean, it's fairly impressive where it's at now. Uh, Along the way, I got uh, requested to help some customers out with the issues they were having and uh, some field teams that they were having. And uh, got pretty good at that and uh, actually had a, a fair amount of work going down that path. And uh, that sort of was, I guess, my hobby job. And uh, several years ago, I decided to kind of transition from the day job and make the hobby job my hobby job. So I look at a, a lot of customer systems a week. I don't know, some some weeks I think I probably looked at 50 or 60 different systems. Uh, so I'm, I'm probably pretty, pretty familiar with how systems look inside when they're running well and when they're not running so well. And uh, so I spend a lot of time helping the field architecting solutions. That's usually the, the really fun work because nobody's unhappy at that point. And uh, I also also spent a lot of time, uh, you know, sort of as the doctor of last call to dig some uh, of the sick patients out of the ditch, so to speak. Yeah, so you get to kind of see the beginning and the end results, right? So you get to see the systems before they get set up so you can help them get set up correctly. And then you can, uh, can see the systems after they were set up incorrectly and tried to repair them. Yeah, and it, you know, I've had a few interesting opportunities along the way. For example, uh, you know, helping size for upgrades in virtual environments and being able to look at them afterwards and how they were running, and uh, you know, learning quite a bit empirically about how those look on the system. So, you know, it's a it's been a lot of fun being able to look deeply into the system and understand it. And certainly, some of the uh, some of the things we encounter with customers are puzzles that need to be worked out. And work with a lot of great people here at NetApp to help get those solved got a pretty good track record of solving problems. Excellent. So um, to start off with, I mean, we just did a podcast this past week on the SPC1 numbers. I don't know if you're familiar with the oh, yeah. 2.4 million IOPS. Um, so what is your, what are your thoughts on how that is progressing? Like where, you know, where we stand today with that performance number? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, as I said, the foundation was laid to uh, be able to scale across multiple cores. Uh, and, you know, we continue to scale fairly effortlessly up into the 9,000 A700 series. I mean, I've got a ton of cores in those systems. Um, so, you know, that will continue to work well. I think, uh, you know, there's a, a great opportunity with Flash to sort of be re-architecting some of the ways that uh, ONTAP works inside. Uh, you know, I don't know if people are aware, but ONTAP uh, is sort of a, a collection of domains or threads, and messages get passed in between those threads. And um, basically, uh, you know, a lot of that was designed f- around disk when if we didn't have data we needed in memory, we would suspend uh, an operation, put it on a suspend queue, and then come back and get it from the disk. Well, now that we have SSD, and it's much, much faster than disk ever was, it gives you a lot of different options in terms of how you manage some of those. And uh, a lot of that's going into sort of fine-tuning on tap for SSD. So that'll continue to help drive it up quite a bit more in terms of performance. 
Now, you mentioned several times about multiple cores, and that's an interesting point to make because it kind of ties into the evolution of where ONTAP has come from into where it's going. So I remember when I was in support, the uh, the bad word of the day was Kahuna, right? I mean, everything was stuck in Kahuna. It was kind of like this dumping ground for all these processes. As we get more CPUs, we were able to spread those processes out into more cores and do more with the system and, and do things in parallel. So if you could give us a, a kind of performance 101, uh, you know, an overview of how performance is working today in ONTAP 9.x and above. Well, um you know, uh, uh, it's been a long time since I've seen an issue around Kahuna. Uh, I did see those. Yes, uh, they were they were there, but they're they're gone now. So let's just yeah. kind of I guess discuss where we are today and like how we are allocating processing and how we're doing our overall performance improvements okay. in general. Well, a lot of how uh, on tap was parallelized um, is around sort of the volume level. Um, you know, as we get more cores, we can bring more threads on uh, to a particular volume. Uh, and a lot of the workloads at this point in time probably have, you know, plenty of threads to be managing the parallel part of their workloads. Uh, but um, I'm not sure the exact term. Uh, I call it a, a volume group, but there's a set of threads. Uh, you always have in a file system some operations that have to run uh, atomically. So those have a single thread that they run in in vol log, and it runs exclusive from the stripes, which is the most parallel portion. Uh, you know, there's a constant uh, set of work that's going on to move operations more and more parallel. For example, deletes have been moved from Kahuna when they used to really bog the system down to now actually they have a lot of the delete workload running in Stripe. So major improvements there. Uh, deletes, I think, will always be one of the areas that we continue to do a lot of work on architecturally. But, uh, uh, you know, that's one of the examples of, of stuff that has been pushed down. Um, you know, some other examples for SIFS uh, workloads used to have opens that ran in Kahuna, and that would really easily become the bottleneck for high high throughput on SIFS workloads, the number of open commands. And that has been pushed down into the vol log thread. Now, when I talk about a volume group, that's sort of a group of threads that are servicing the workload on a volume. And what we have in most of our systems are four volume groups. And so as volumes online, they get mapped into one of these groups. So, you know, we have been able to bring more and more threads onto it as well as sort of put more parallelism so the volumes are running separately from one another. And uh, so that, you know, that, that really has helped a lot. I mean, you know, as I said, the... Uh, the, uh, the SIFS bottlenecks of the past now are starting to disappear as people are migrating up to 8.3 and above. And so uh, a, a lot of things have been going on down that path. Yep, and these volume groups, we also know them as affinities or, right. or Waffinity, right? I mean, something along those lines. Um, you know, Waffinity is, uh, or the affinities are reference all of the threads. And a volume group is a collection of threads and their relationship with one another that sort of all operate together on the group of volumes that have been mapped into that volume group. Um, you know, you, you still have... Uh, we, you know, for example, there's sort of work that has to be done at an aggregate level. There's a lot of uh, uh, sort of background processing that, that has to work up at that level because that's where we're maintaining a lot of our data structures. So there's threads that process things for the aggregate, which are not really user workloads. There's a, a volume level that process some of, some of the background work for volume. Uh, and actually, both of those areas have been sort of parallelized as well. And then sort of the classic user ops are really mostly in sort of the vol log threads and the stripe threads. And, uh, um, you know, as I said, sort of the, the way... Uh, again, there's sort of another level of complexity in that is there's uh, multiple queues that service those. Uh, there's a high priority, a low priority, and a CP priority. And our scheduling manages uh, which operations go where. I mean, typically in the past, one of the things that would happen is uh, operations would suspend. They restart on the low pry queue. Uh, and uh, they get processed there. But, you know, one of the, the major changes around SSD, which has been there for a few releases now, has been that actually we don't unsuspend the reads to SSD. We actually just automatically pass the data all the way up into the networking layer. So that's greatly reduced what you might call the path length of getting a read completed as well as the overhead to do it. So those are some of it. Do you have some other thoughts or questions down that path? Yes. I mean, we've talked a little bit about CPU allocation. We've talked about uh, the vol log and Stripe 
chips and pieces like that. Let's talk about Waffle itself. Um, and the, I guess kind of give us an idea of the architecture of Waffle and then kind of move into some of the best practices that you'd have with Waffle, why you would do certain things and why you mm-hmm. want to avoid certain things. You know, for example, do I want to run at a certain capacity percentage? Do I want to have, you know, 80% available or 20% available or whatever? You know, the, the issues you run into as you get lower on space and that sort of thing. Okay. Um, well, Waffle is really where all of the operation processing goes on. Um, basically, uh, you know, we can service many, many different types of protocols. Those get handled really largely uh, right below the networking layer, whatever the transport layer management is. Uh, that all gets translated into Waffle operations, and those operations come into Waffle. And then, depending, you know, as I described, sort of there's the threads uh, for each volume affinity, the operations will come in there and be sorted. Um, you know, there's been a, a constant push from even the beginning of parallelization to push as much into the most parallel level, which is Stripe again, uh, for the processing. But, you know, as I said, some operations by their nature have to run sort of exclusive of other operations so everything sees the state change. You know, for example, like set adders or uh, uh, removes or deletes have to run in a way such that everything uh, sees that. Now, um, you know, in general, uh, it, it works really fairly well. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things, I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time looking down at the thread level to understand what's going on and the kind of problems that I've had. Uh, but I've come to realize that actually, you know, most, uh, most mortals and users probably don't have to go down to that level unless they're really very fascinated. And, and I actually speculate there's nobody who really understands everything that's there. Uh, you know, it's just become such a, a large beast. And it's interesting because I'm constantly learning stuff that I didn't know before, seeing other things and how it operates. Uh, now, you, one of the things you mentioned was uh, space. Um, you know, in spinning disk systems, uh, one of the, th- well, I mean, so let me describe for a moment. One of the things that's really unique about how Waffle works is how we manage the writes. Um, and this is in particular compared to like block systems. Um, basically, what we're doing is we're taking all of the data that is being written and we're actually writing it into a new area on the disk. Um, and so, again, we're managing all the virtualization pointers. So, you you, uh, you know, you say you want this to go to address A. There was something else at address A. Well, what we're basically doing is grouping this together with other writes. There's really sort of a virtual address A that we go put this at. Uh, we free up the old data and that space gets recovered. But we're always writing to uh, a new area, um, and the uh, the advantages of that are, are several. Um, one of them is uh, really it goes back to how snapshots work. You know, the fact that every write is sort of into a new location. Whenever we want to take a snapshot, we can just at that moment freeze that file system metadata. And so, and we freeze all the blocks that's associated with that. Um, and then what we can do is move ahead and we'll have new pointers to where the new blocks are going. So, uh, you know, it, it makes snapshots just tremendously painless to manage and, you know, virtually no performance impact at all. Um, so, you know, on disk systems, I mean, it's, it's interesting that, you know, at this point, my mind has really started to shift how SSDs always work and how so many disk problems went away. When I first started working in the field, I could almost make a bet uh, that a problem would be a disk problem with a system, and about 75% of the time I'd be right. And that's gotten a lot better over time, but uh, I'd say that probably that goes to about 98% of the time. Now it's not the disk at all, uh, certainly with SSDs. So one of the issues that you can run into with disk is um, how much free space you have. You know, we're right, since we're writing into free space, uh, you know, it's good to have free space there that we can write into. Obviously, we can't, uh, you know, write into space and, and free things up. Otherwise, we can get tremendously wedged uh, when everything gets full. So what happens is, is that... Uh, you know, we're writing into free space. Over time, the free space fragments because some of the old data was not necessarily contiguous. It got written over. It was released. So you sort of get these large spaces that have sort of little blocks of data in it. And so we have to write around those. 
Um, and so getting something that has that free space heavily fragmented in the past has been something that led to degraded performance. Um, it, would, uh, it would make writing the data out much more costly because we were having to do many more interactions with the disk subsystem during the, the background process to write the data out. Um, you know, the other thing to kind of mention about writes is writes today come in and they go into a non-volatile memory area, NVRAM is what we typically call it. And so once it goes into uh, the home controller's node and it's HA's partner's node, it, we acknowledge it. And uh, typically NVRAM is on PCI, so that operation is, is very, very fast. Um, and, you know, as such, most systems I see, I sort of have an expectation that the latency is well less than two milliseconds on those to compare complete those operations because it's so fast. So what we do then is process the data in the background for the writes, and that's called the CP process. And uh, I've speculated, let's say, checkpoint might be one answer, another point might be cleaning process. I'm not really sure if several people probably think about it different ways. But that's the process that writes the data out. And as I said, that's the part that's really sort of unique about how ONTAP works. Um, and so what we do when we do that is we actually go group all the data by file, all the data by volume, and we go write that all out at the same time. So, for example, if you've been writing a pending into a file, all of that data will be collected, put together, and be put together down on the disk. So we maintain uh, keeping it together that way. Uh, and then we go update all the uh, special user pointers, or the not user, but the on-tap pointers, and that's another part of it. So anyway, but to, uh, to go back during that process, if the disk becomes very fragmented, it can elongate it out. And the problem we would run into with disk is when the space got fairly small, uh, you know, uh, I sort of use a rule of thumb as, you know, become aware of your space at about 85% full. Uh, I don't think everything falls over, but you need to start being aware of, of that and thinking about what you're going to be doing at that point. And again, this is for spinning media. Because if you got a lot lower than that, then actually the free space fragmentation speeds up greatly uh, and becomes much more of a problem, and you can get into more and more trouble processing the writes. You could get into back-to-back -back CPs, which is uh, what happens when you can't get all of the data written out fast enough, faster than it's coming in. So uh, now with SSDs, uh, you know, the, the key thing that's a lot different, we still may have to be managing that free space, but they're so much faster than the disk. Um, it's really just sort of in some ways we're paying a bit more CPU cost to do the extra accesses, but in terms of time, it's very minimal in terms of the impact of the time. So, in fact, you know, uh, people, you know, I don't know that we know the exact number, but people are speculating that we can really push the uh, utilization space up fairly high on the SSDs and not encounter it. You know, I do think you probably get up to about 95%, and, uh, you know, you're probably close enough to the edge that you may, uh, you know, overrun yourself. So, you know, you need to make sure that you leave enough headroom up there so you don't run out of total space that you use. Yeah, that's interesting, Tony. I hadn't considered the fact that with SSDs we could push the, the file system utilization so much higher before, I mean, effectively, we don't really have to take into account the load. It's just the, the, the risk of how full do you really want to run a file system. Um, yeah, I think that's the case. I mean, the you know the, the things that typically got us into trouble with disk, um, you know, one was file fragmentation, another was free space fragmentation, and you know another issue which a lot of people don't necessarily think about, but which I you know saw all the time is how hard you're utilizing the disk. Um, you know, disk are devices that have a queue. You can send uh, at least in the way we use them up to eight commands out to the disk, and you can actually even inside. Uh, sort of the software side of uh, the RAID layer, queue other commands. So once you start queuing commands, they have to wait for all of the commands to go away in front of them. So for, let's just use a real simple case. Uh, SAS drive is normally about seven milliseconds a time, and uh, that's for a single access. So let's say you have two operations on the disk at any point in time. That means your average latency for those operations is going to be around 14 milliseconds. And so, um, you know, the way, at least in terms of sort of the accounting, the way we sort of look at it, uh, we look at disk utilization. And so right around the point where spinning disk gets about 50% utilized, that's about the point where you're starting to queue two operations on the disk. And, 
you know, you certainly can go use the disk at that level of utilization. You can use them higher, but the issue is is, is that the latency goes up by the queue depth. It's a multiplicative factor. Uh, it is a big latency comparably in the system. I mean, you know, seven milliseconds is like forever, and three times seven, four times seven is a pretty darn big number. Uh, one of the issues that we'd run into also when the, you know, the disks were too busy is, you know, we have a very extensive read-ahead set of algorithms that are reading ahead on sequential read workloads. Well, those algorithms can't keep up when the latency is out that long. So uh, usually the way we can hide latency on a sequential read workload, we can't do, and the user suddenly starts experiencing the full, you know, for example, 28 milliseconds of disk latency. And they notice things like that pretty quickly. So, you know, disk had all of these characteristics. Uh, you know, if you used them too much and were queuing too many operations, uh, you know, if your files fragmented, your free space fragmented, you could get into trouble. And, and that's why, as I said, you know, about 75% of the time I could almost guess it was a disk-related performance issue and be right. Um, you know, the beauty with SSDs is that goes away. Um, it really sort of becomes a, a non-issue, and uh, it really changes the landscape. I mean, uh, just a sort of brief tangent, uh, you know, SQL workloads have always been uh, interesting problems. Um, you know, I once had a customer work with their account team and say, well, it's just a random 8K read and write workload. Well. SQL is really not like that. SQL tends to have very unoptimized uh, commands, and so those commands will go grab a whole table. So you'll see very high burst of reads. Uh, most any client these days can easily go do 400 megabytes of reads a second. Uh, you know, request that much or expect that much from storage. Um, and then you know, one of the other classic things was client-side backup. What happened at night? And uh, in one case, I remember a customer had. Uh, incorrectly sort of had sizing done and because they thought it was just the 8K workload and they had a, a hybrid aggregate. I think it had four data SSDs and five SAS data SSDs plus the parity drives for both of those. And that would have worked great probably for the 8K workload they thought it was, but in fact, you know, as I said, it's a, a very sequential large I.O. workload, and uh, I can tell you the SAS drives were just uh, in great pain at night when they did the client-side backup. But the great thing is, is, you know, those workloads can be put onto SSD, and all of those problems just go away. I mean, it, it just makes it a non-problem. So... SSDs are very amazing things. Yeah, we've actually touched on that before in the podcast where we kind of have hinted at the fact that SSDs make a lot of problems go away. And it's it's remarkable that just that one change could really do that for you. Well, um, you know, I doubt that the world will become a perfect place and I'm out of a job because there's a lot of ways you can easily overrun a controller without really meaning to. Um, oh, yeah. But, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's a whole different world. I mean, you know, when, when we started having... Uh, uh, you know, SSDs, uh, for example, because you have the large sequential read workloads, SQL workloads tend to have file fragmentation issues. Again, that's just, and you'd have to do a volume reallocate to straighten that out. That takes time, customer pain, you know, all of that stuff goes away. You don't have to deal with that issue anymore. So it is pretty amazing candy to have. So let's talk a little bit about um, latency because you touched on it a second ago. You know, Latency is kind of the big uh, selling point for the SSDs overall. You know, we can get sub-millisecond latencies. And, you know, a lot of applications don't really need that. Um, but why is it important as a selling point for SSD drives? Well, let's uh, step up a, a moment and sort of look at the big picture around latency. Um, you know, on a... Uh, on a normal system with spinning disk, let's say it's got either a flash cache or flash pool tier, um, my expectations on the type of latencies users would see, uh, read operations should be five milliseconds or less, write operations should be two milliseconds or less, and your uh, most common metadata operations would probably be less than a millisecond easily. And that's sort of what I, you know, have come to expect from a good performing system. Um, and, you know, certainly when I've seen systems not in that zone, those are usually ones where customers have noticed and there's a call about what's wrong with the system. Now, you know, uh, on the other side, and, and by the way, you know, the, the problem is, is there were a lot of disk-related problems that could crop up that would cause problems. And, and some of them were very painful, you know, having to do 
aggregate reallocations are usually not simple things. Uh, you know, volume reallocation is not a simple thing to go do either. So, uh, you know, a lot of these things had issues associated with it. Now, you know, my expectations for SSDs is certainly, you know, and systems, you know, they, you can, it depends, but I mean, let, let's just say, you know, if you had a healthily loaded system, uh, at the high level, I would expect all operations to be less than two milliseconds. Now, you know, why am I not saying one millisecond? Um, you know, there's enough variability between what's going on with the disk. Um, there's variability in ONTAP and how ONTAP gets loaded. Uh, and some of that can cause some queuing, uh, which would sort of push the latency up more than just sort of what you'd get from the bare disk. Uh, certainly, you can go construct a system if you need to to get sub-millisecond latency off of it. But, you know, the thing is, is you can get two milliseconds or less latency day in and day out and not have to face some of the headaches that users have had to deal with in the past with spending median and the problems that that had. And as I said, in, in some ways, you know, we'll probably in the future talk some about sizing systems, but, you know, uh, you know, at this point, it's how much capacity do you need. It really doesn't matter how many disks you have. I think probably two or three disks would probably saturate even most of our systems, um, assuming that we had the uh, the uh, pipeline to the disk quite enough. But, um, you know, it's it's no longer a, a really a sizing consideration about how many disks you have on the back end. Uh, there's more than enough to keep the controller busy easily. Interesting. So... As far as the latency goes, I mean, when I was working in support, or just now, we'd see occasionally the question comes across where, you know, I'm looking at my performance manager, or I'm looking at my perf stat, and I see these latencies going to, you know, 100, 100 milliseconds or, you know, two seconds. You know, why is that? And then you go and look at the operations, there's no operations, mm. right? So can you give us some insight on why you'd see, like, mega high latencies with no operations versus, like, predictable latencies with a lot of operations? Um, and I guess it's just basic math, but let's go ahead and talk about that. Sure. Well, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, I guess maybe, again, I'll step up to a higher level since you, you did this. Uh, you know, I think the key thing that uh, operations managers need to be aware of is is to be looking at latency. Um, you know, my, uh, my general theory and experience has been as if a, a system is experiencing you know, five minutes of bad latency, that's enough that users are probably going to notice and there's a chance the phone will start ringing at that point in time. So, you know, our, we, we finally have a really nice set of tools, um, OCI, OPM, Grafana, uh, all of those work very well to collect the data. Um, and so, you know, that's a good place to go see the latency and uh, even diagnose some of the issues that go on with it. Now, you know, I think uh, one of the things that I've noticed, and, and I don't know if there's been a, a change uh, in some way in some of the accounting, but, you know, I will frequently see something that at least statistically we say has zero IOPS per second. It has some, uh, but the latencies, you know, can appear out of bounds for those operations. And, uh, you know, my, my assumption is, is that it really it's an issue with the counters uh, and sort of our math when numbers get that small or approach zero, so to speak. Um, and so, you know, if you, if you think about it, for example, if you had a few volumes that had essentially zero ops per second showing, but they were showing a high latency or, you know, say 10 or less, uh, you know, if you look at it sort of at the aggregate level, um, those ops average out. So if you look sort of at the node level for the latency, you're not going to see those. Those are just anomalies. And, and I, I really have never ran into a problem where a user was experiencing bad latency on those or there was an issue. So so uh, I know that actually there have been some recent customer discussions around this. I was listening in on a, a support case on that yesterday. Uh, but, you know, as I said, I've, I've just sort of put those into the bucket of, well, that's interesting. But if it's got that many IOPS, I'm not going to sweat that problem. It, it doesn't matter. But again, as I said, you know, the, the I think it's sort of a math problem potentially in the system in terms of why it shows inflated. And then on the other side, when you do the math and aggregate the ops, it goes away and it's a non-problem. Yeah. And I mean, as far as the problem is concerned, it, what it does, it triggers alerts, right? So you set an alert to be a threshold of, you know, X milliseconds. And then you get this outlier, and it triggers the alert, and everybody's, like, scrambling, like, oh, my gosh, you know, what's going on? Well, 
you know, I, I tend to, again, I think, you know, that's sort of uh, what level do you want to look at it? You know, I've had a lot of uh, chance to kind of think about how you operate and manage performance on systems since I've been doing the job out in the field. That's one of the things I really wanted to understand quite a bit more. And I tend to think that, you know, in general, you can simplify the way you think about things and things will work out okay. So, for example, instead of having alerts where I was tracking this on the volume, I'd be much more interested in what's the node latency. You know, if the node latency is out of the ranges that I discussed earlier, I'd be very interested to know that because that was probably being very impactful to one or more applications. Um, and so, uh, you know, for example, you know, in the past we have uh, the sysstat command and you can, you know, see all these mystical numbers on every core and what does this really mean? And in the past it used to mean something, that kahuna that you mentioned ran on one core and you could see that one core running at 100%, you know, you were out of luck. Uh, but anymore, things are so multi-threaded and so scheduled across the cores that, you know, really you can't look at that. Matter of fact, you know, what I, what I, t I mean, there's, there's several different headroom metrics that uh, are in the tools and, uh, you know, I've worked with the uh, teams to kind of put some of those in, some of the, some of the new ones that have come in and the more recent software releases, but all of those headrooms are pretty accurate to take a look at and use. And so, you know, in some ways, uh, I, you know, move up to a higher level, look at it, look at your node latencies, look at your uh, utilization headroom metrics for um, the controllers. And if you have spinning disk, you want to look at your utilization on your, your aggregates. And those are some of the key things that you'd want to take a look at to uh, really look at the system and understand it. I think, you know, there's a lot of detail that's available. I mean, you know, we uh, kind of, kind of the analogy is, is, uh, you know, uh, several of you probably are familiar with the term of perfstat. That's the uh, tool that we run to go collect all the low-level counters. And I've often thought of that as sort of like the computer jack under your hood in the car where the technician can go look at everything that's going on oh, yeah. with every sensor. But, you know, most mortals don't need to look at that for their automobile. They just need a dashboard. And uh, I think actually our tools have really come to the point where they give you a good set of information to go look at. And I think, you know, in general, sort of what you might call the more detailed problems or, you know, because disks are going to SSD or becoming much simpler or going away. So there's still going to be some of those where maybe performance is bad. It doesn't seem to show up well in the tools. And that's a great time to open a support case and ask a question. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, the old line of thinking was we had to be very granular and very complicated to isolate performance issues. But now it's simplifying and it's getting more at a higher level. And we're able to see things faster. And then with the headroom feature functionality, we can see a capacity, a percentage of your overall performance. And, you know, the goal is actually to get to 100%. Well, you know, well, there's, there's, go ahead. Well, I was just going to, to add on to that. I mean, t Tony, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but I assume that's just because the architecture's kind of flipped, right? With the disks having so many ops, the bottlenecks now back up at the controller. So having this, this monitoring in depth, if you will, of, yeah, go ahead and watch your LUNs and watch your volumes. But, but if you get a spike, you know, maybe not panic unless you see the spike at the node level. Um, and, and having more of a granular view of your infrastructure, I think that works now because we're back to more centralized constraint points. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the way I encourage people to do this, and I've taught a few customers some of these classes, and maybe at some point in time I'll actually formalize this a bit more and turn it into a, a class or come up with some way to spread it. But, you know, the, again, the, the way I talk about sort of managing systems from a performance point of view is make sure that you're tracking, you know, you have a historic tracking tracking of your latency. Um, you know, I have worked on many problems where customer calls in, they're having bad latency, and the controller shows that the latency is reasonable. And uh, honestly, I think, you know, most of the time, I really believe that's the case in the controller. I mean, I have, I have not yet found uh, a case where sort of I doubted the tools uh, as I did a deeper analysis. So, you know, the, the reason that you want to track the latency is the call's going to come. And if you can look at the latency, and the latency seems to correlate with what's going on, and again, I look at it at a high level, look at it at a node level, or you can even look at it, uh, you know, down at the volume level in the tools. Um, and if you see a correlation with the latency, well, then you know that there's some issue on the storage side. 
Uh, but there's a fair number of issues that we can have these days. Infrastructures have gotten a lot more complicated, and I think people probably don't have as many skills maybe as they once had in terms of setting them up and architecting them. But you know, recently we ran into issues where, for example, we're overrunning the uh, uh, adapters on the host side. And so once you start to do that, then the host is not giving credits back on the, uh, the fiber channel connectivity. And uh, if we're not getting credits, we can't transmit. So they're seeing a high latency, but we're, in fact, waiting to be able to put data on the wire because we've overrun those. So it's really important to kind of be able to look at that and take into account where the latency is and where it's not to be able to start diagnosing the infrastructure correctly where the problem is. Now, on the other side, if, for example, you saw the node latency seem to correlate with the problem, well, latency goes up because you ran out of a resource. Um, you know, there's a sort of what they call a classic hockey stick of what uh, you can describe latency and throughput. Latency tends to be low and flat across a wide range of throughput. But you reach a point where you start to exhaust some resource in the system, you have operations start to queue, then it climbs up very high. That's the handle of the hockey stick. So, you know, if you get to the point where uh, something is showing a high latency uh, at the node level, then you probably, you know, a, an easy assumption is you've ran out of either CPU or disk. Now, it's become even easier if it's SSD. Probably it's not the disk you've ran out of CPU. Now, you know, I think usually you can look at the node utilization in the tools, and the node utilization will show some correlation. You might also see some correlation, either IOPS or throughput that would go along with that. And if you see all of that, and that's really actually probably like the 80-20 rule, 80% 80 of the problems kind of have that correlation, then you can actually use the tools to go in and you can say, okay, which volume in this node is driving the workload? You know, which, which aggregate uh, or volume in the aggregate is making the aggregate busy, so to speak. Now, kind of my rule of thumb in terms of when you start to see issues is if you see the node utilization go above 85%, there's pretty clear sign that the controller is probably most likely the culprit for latency issues. Uh, now, what I recommend is if you're caring about latency in a takeover condition, what you probably want to do is run both nodes at about 50%, you know, an aggregate 100% would be really another way to state that. Um, so that, you know, when you went into a takeover, you wouldn't have latency issues. You know, conceivably, if you're running an infrastructure where you can, you know, take, uh, you know, your SLAs are okay with latency and your rare takeover events, uh, you know, I recommend you could run it as high as maybe a combined 150% or 75 and 75. So it really sort of depends on sort of what your SLA is that you're trying to deliver. Um, but, you know, as I said, uh, above 85%. Now, on spinning disk and uh, the utilization that the tool shows there, again, if it gets above 50%, that's where I start to get concerned that that's causing an issue for the applications. And so, um, you know, as I said, when you, when you see those numbers, you see those rules of thumb, those limits, um, then you can go in and figure out which workload is driving most of the volume for that, and you can make some decisions. Uh, you know, one one probably easy decision is to go look for some place with some more headroom on it and full move the application over there. That's probably about the fastest, easiest way to go solve those type of issues is rebalancing. And I think a lot of people run into issues where they don't have their workloads well balanced. Um, it's just in the past with our tools that weren't very good on the performance side, that was easy to go do. Now it's much easier to go manage that. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, I, as, and as I said, I think with the SSD, it certainly takes a, a part of the, that picture out, and you're just really watching your node latency. But it also, you know, those types of things make it much easier for, uh, you know, the end customers and for the field teams to go help the customers diagnose what's going on. I think I really, matter of fact, actually, the interesting thing I'd say about the tools is I will often use those these days to go look at a problem first. When I'm dealing with a problem with a customer, it often gives me enough clues that really refines it. Instead of uh, you know recommending to go collect a detailed perf stat, in a lot of cases you can take a look at it and start to see what some of the issues are at that higher level. So uh, you know, to me, that's a testimony that the tools have really become very, very good. Yeah, if Tony Gaddis is relying on the tools, you probably should use the tools. <laughs> well, let's 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 go ahead and get into that. What what are your favorite tools, Tony? You know, I'll tell you what, it's it's really simple. Uh, well, actually, tell you what, uh, you know, I would say make sure you're using one of them. 
Now, on the other hand, uh, I would say, uh, and I would really strongly recommend this, if you have a fiber channel infrastructure, you really need OCI. And I realize this is probably kind of a geeky thing, but I have ran into numerous cases where basically the fiber channel network has ran out of transmit credits and somebody's bottlenecking somebody else. And, you know, at least from having worked those fairly detailed cases with the customers, I haven't found other people that had tools that could easily go look at that. Um, there's, uh, you know, the capability to go look at the back-to-back -back credits and see if you have periods where there's zero back-to-back, or not back-to-back -back credits, but buffer-to-buffer uh, -buffer credits. And you can go see if you have uh, periods where you have none of those to do transmits. And that starts to give you a really good clue uh, that the issue. With one customer, again, this is one of the ones where it starts out, well, uh, you know, the application's seeing really bad latency. Storage must be the problem. We went and looked at storage, and, you know, we didn't see the bad latency being bad. And then it sort of always sort of, well, can you prove that? And the interesting thing is, is we pulled up OCI and uh, the customer and I looking at it together, we saw very clearly that we weren't getting credits to transmit. And the reason we weren't getting credits was the client wasn't giving the switch credits to transmit. And the whole discussion really quickly focused on where the real issues were instead of sort of, you know, can you prove where the problems are? So I would, I would really, really recommend if you're deploying a fiber channel infrastructure that you need OCI in there to help you diagnose those issues. Um, uh, and I have, I have found that uh, that's really some of the fastest way to kind of debug those problems. And it doesn't appear like there's other tools out that are very good. And, you know, I've even found some of our partners have difficulty in being able to come in and have that discussion about where the problems are. But, but OCI seems to really highlight that. So we've talked a little bit about utilization in CPU. One of the common questions I used to get was, you know, why is my CPU at 100%, right? And now sometimes you can even see it at 400%, right? You know, you can see it in cases where it looks like it's like crazy overutilized. And there's a reason behind that. And to kind of clarify why that is, could you go into why we see certain things with CPU utilization, the SysStats and the uh, SysStat-M, uh, capital M, right? So tell us a little bit about that and why CPU looks the way it does and what it really means to be 100% utilized. Well, um, that's an interesting question. Uh, and, you know, it's, a, it's interesting looking back in history. Uh, you know, as I, I took the job in the field, um, I found that looking in uh, sysstat-m and looking at average CPU was one of the really good markers for how much utilization you had of the system. Um, you know, the, one of the reasons why it had become that is we'd gotten a, so much parallelism that actually having a single thread have an issue became a very rare case. Um, you know, and the... Uh, in those rare cases, I would just go over and look at the Kahuna column, and typically my rule of thumb is if Kahuna was up above 60%, it was probably starting to cause latency for the users. Um, so, you know, what I would look at was the average processor busy. Now, we also had uh, CPU busy, and uh, CPU busy was... Um, uh, it had this notion of how it sort of tried to measure what they called Kahuna plus Kahu. And what I realized is Kahu was not really a measure of utilization. Um, and so in a, in a way what it caused, you try and keep it up somewhat at a high level, it caused an overstatement of what the utilization really was. In 821, they uh, changed how CPU Busy uses that. Matter of fact, it no longer uses that as a metric. And uh, so actually what I tend to see now most of the time in post 821 systems is uh, average CPU and CPU Busy are about the same number. And um, you know, again, at, at this point, it's just a summation of all the work on the system. Um, you know, there are, there are some things, you know, for example, like dedupe. Uh, you know, my general recommendation around background dedupe tends to be you still want the scanners to run at night and off hours. Um, you know, my experience is they tend to be... Uh, probably not as fair with user workloads. They can be impactful to user workload given some of the characteristics of how they run. Um, so, you know, for example, you might at night see a much higher CPU. Uh, that's all good. I wouldn't worry about it. You know, by, by the way, my rule of thumb about sort of the uh, 
the 100%, the 50%, the 85% is really to look at that during user hours and judge it then. Because at night, you do a lot of background processes, the dedupe. There's a lot of uh, backups that run and other things like that. And, you know, that may drive a higher utilization during that time. I don't know, did I kind of address some of your question there? Were you wanting yeah, to Yeah, yeah. So our, basically where I was taking it was, you know, 100% depends on the time of day and the workload, but it also depends on, you know, what you expect. And utilization just means you're utilizing it and that it isn't necessarily a problem. And you want to go a little deeper to see what is actually using the CPU. So sometimes it's snap mirror. Sometimes it's snapshot schedules. Right. Maybe you have too many snapshot schedules running at a time. Maybe that's impacting your overall CPU utilization. And when you get to the 400% numbers and some of the calculations you see, that's actually aggregation of all the CPUs in your system. So if you have four processors and they're all at 100%, that's 400%. So don't freak out when you see like 400%. Yeah, yeah. as I said, there's a lot of different counters, for, for example, like in Sys.M. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't think... Maybe at one point in time they had some value to help understand the system, but uh, probably the ones I have found most valuable in Sys.M would be to look at average CPU. Uh, It would be to look at Kahuna. And sometimes I just look at sort of the overall domains and sort of how they're balanced. I mean, I tend to think, for example, the network domain is very parallelized. But in general, I'd expect the network domain to use less CPU than the waffle exempt part. In other words, we should be paying more. So sometimes there's some interesting cases you can run into where maybe something's running high on network or some corner cases like that. But, you know, as I said, those are sort of the esoteric cases that sometimes people will run into. You know, it's not the day-to-day thing. But, you know, for most most people to take a look at, average processor busy would be the main one. And Kahuna is slightly interesting if you're running SIFS workloads and you're pre-8.3, which, you know, is really looking at... Yeah, the, we're looking, looking in the rearview mirror, mirror there. A yeah. long yep. ways down the yep. road. That's right. Yeah. All right, Tony. So I'm going to ask you the hard question here. This is going to be the hardest question you're going to get all day. Um, Tony, my system is slow. Well, let's see. Uh, I get that question multiple times a day. Yes, that is the hardest question anyone could ask because there is a lot of fungibility in that question. So tell me how you would answer that question. Well, um, you know, so so let's for a moment do a thought experiment where uh, potentially I'm on a WebEx with a customer. And, you know, what I'd first want to do is to go open up, let's just take OPM as an example, open up OPM and uh, go through and, you know, it'd be good to know which workload was experiencing slowness or if it's all workloads, you know, understand that. Um, And then I'd want to go start taking a look at what was the latency on that particular node that owned the workload. Um, And... uh, you know that would uh, that would kind of confirm for me, you know, that we had found sort of the location of where things were slow. Again, latency is sort of your confirmation of slowness. Um, now, you know, as as I was sort of alluded to before, um, we probably ran out of some resource. Um, so, you know, actually, even this morning early, I was on the phone call with people from around the world, and we were looking at their systems and. Uh, uh, you know, we went in and we basically went down to the node level in OPM and we looked at the latency on both of them. And you can go over to uh, the uh, sort of the chart view. It says four charts selected. I tend to look at IOPS advanced, latency advanced, and megabytes per second advanced, and utilization, for example, at the node level. And so that can tell you whether your uh, read or write latency is slow. Um, and that gives you some clues as to sort of what the problem may be. Um, and then I tend to go look at what the uh, the utilization is on the node. And again, sort of what I'm looking for would be uh, if there was a period of bad latency, I would see something like the node utilization might correlate with that. A step up in the node utilization would be a correlation. Um, now, you know, the other correlation that I go to go look at would be to uh, go to the aggregates. You can uh, do the aggregates on this node, and I would look at those, and I would look at what their utilization was. And again, sort of using the numbers, as I said before, I'd be looking for spinning disk to be less than 50% busy. Uh, SSDs, it, I, I'd not even be bothering with that step. Um, and so, uh, you know, what I would expect to see is either either or both, potentially the aggregate and the node utilization would show a, cor- a correlation. Um, 
And then my next step that I'd want to do is say, okay, this is most likely some workload that's driving it. So you can, for example, go down into the volumes per aggregate. And uh, that actually is really pretty nice because it arranges, you have columns over on the left-hand side for latency for uh, IOPS and megabytes per second. And you can real quickly click at the top of it and it'll make sure that you get the highest ones up at the top for any one of those. So that gives you a clue as to maybe which ones are interesting to go look at. You can go add those to the chart to go view. You can then see them across a time range and you can see whether their characteristics in terms of latency and IOPS and uh, megabytes per second correlate with the utilization increase that you see. In which case, then you know it's that workload. And so, uh, you know, what are some of your options to do with that? You know, one of the things that I've kind of found is if a workload goes busy, there's a really good chance it's an important workload. So, uh, you know, for example, in one case, yeah, we identified the one and we discussed it and said, okay, well, to make the system a little happier, we're going to go use QoS on it. Well, you know, the problem is, is if it's a port and application, you can count on the fact it will impact the most people. So the phone rang quite a bit after that. So, you know, QoS, on the other hand, is very valuable for what you might call a rogue workload. We uh, had another customer. Uh, they had one workload on one volume that was just rogue. They were doing sort of a silly operation over there. And they needed the system clean for the weekend and ongoing, the, you know, needed this other team to get their problem straightened out. This was like on Thursday. So, uh, you know, come Friday, the other team had not straightened the application team owning the volume, hadn't straightened their problem out. So we did the, what I call the step on the air hose. We cranked it down to about 100 ops. System performance for everything else went normal. So, you know, you can sort of make those decisions. But, uh, you know, QoS can be valuable for what I call sort of the rogue workloads. Uh, if you go crank it down on the most important workload for the company, you're going to make the least number of friends that day. Um, you know, if it is that important workload, really then the next thing I'd be considering is, well, how am I going to give it some space? Um, one of the things I've found is, is that... Uh, you know, you don't have a normal distribution of workloads on a volume. You have more of what's called a power law, which means there's a few that are really the dominant ones and others aren't. So, you know, if you can identify, uh, you know, which your big ones are, the decision you can make is which one of those would you all move to someplace else and uh, you know, to free it up. Um, you know, I, I remember another customer uh See, the story goes one weekend, uh, they had their call center database, and their call center was extremely busy. The call center was actually processing revenue-generating transactions. And then they also had one of the very large business databases on the system, and the uh, DBAs decided that would be a great time to do a full table reload on it. It pushed the system over the edge. And then somebody thought that it would clear up if they did a takeover give back. And <laughs> so you can, Justin, being in support, you can imagine how that all worked out. That, that did not work out well. I can tell you that right now. So, you know, the, the, and actually this is a, sort of a, a philosophical thing. I mean, if you're asking me sort of how you design things and architect things, you know, know who your big workloads are and think about how you keep them separate from one another. I tend to call them sharks. And, you know, you can only have one or two sharks in a tank, so to speak. You get a whole pack of sharks in there and somebody's not going to be happy at some point in time. So, uh, well, that's, to, to, not to cut you off, Tony, but, sure. but just to reinforce the point, like that's that's really where the tools come in, right? I mean, yeah. if, if, if you make the investment early on to, to get something deployed so that you're collecting this data, you'll be able to make these decisions when the time comes. Yeah, the thing that's that's interesting to me, uh, you know, as I sort of thought again about management, and this is actually in sort of one of my talks, uh, you know, I talk about, you know, sharks and, and minnows. Um, you know, you can have thousands of volumes, thousands of applications. In general, you should just know who your sharks are. The other ones don't ever cause you a problem. Know your enemy. Yeah, I mean, and, and the thing that's interesting yeah. is that boils it down to something you can probably count on both hands. Yeah. And so, you know, it makes it, that's the thing to me that makes it kind of interesting because if it was, you know, a more uh, uniform distributed problem, it would probably make it a lot harder to go figure out how to go manage. But, you know, knowing who your sharks are and how to manage those. As a matter of fact, another, another longer discussion we can have sometimes, how do you turn sharks into minnows? There are certain ways that you can go do those, certainly for some applications. Um, 
And that's a good way to kind of architect them initially when you're you're doing them. And that's some of the discussions I get into with customers as well. But uh, you know, knowing your sharks, figuring out how to manage it. Now, okay, uh, you know, I ha- I have been engaged in calls recently where, for example, somebody goes, you know, the tool's not showing it. I was on the phone with them. I agreed with them. The tool wasn't showing a correlation. And in that case, you know, it was very clear we needed to open a case for this, uh, collect a perf stat against the uh, issue that they were having. And, and in fact, actually in this case, uh, and we haven't sorted out why, but for some reason the perf stat showed very clearly the load increased and the tool was not necessarily showing the hmm. increase in load as clearly. And I think it may have had some issue in terms of how it was doing the overall accounting and it wasn't seeing something there. But, I mean, that's really about the only case I've ever found where the tools weren't kind of telling me the reality. But, you know, if you have something that doesn't seem to correlate with the utilization, uh, you know, you're not seeing sort of, you know, the 85 or 50 percent. Um, you know, it's not to say that it's still not one of those resources that's a problem. It's just it could be something that's much different than sort of what those simple rules of thumb tell you. And in those times, go open the case. But, you know, I have, uh, looking back over my long history and working with customers, a lot of problems can be solved just by managing your workloads. Uh, uh, I don't know if you've had Stetson Webster come in and talk yeah, to you. A couple of times a storage service design team, yeah. Well, you know, uh, Stetson called me not too long after he got his job, and he said, well, how should I manage performance? And so we had a long discussion, and I gave him my full theory. And he was actually using OCI. And, you know, I loved where he took the discussion. Matter of fact, his, I'm going to steal it. I don't know if he shared it before. But, but he talks about how every Thursday he gets a uh, complete report from OCI that shows all of his nodes, all of his aggregates, and, you know, which ones are over utilized and he sets a threshold on that and uh, you know from that then he can get a volume report to understand which volumes are on it so you know over a cup of coffee he decides what work orders need to go in for volume moves to rebalance the infrastructure he keeps the infrastructure well balanced uh, that way with his 15 minute set of work on Thursday morning from the report and then he doesn't get very many phone calls so you know, I, I think that sort of looking at it at a high level and managing that way, you can get rid of probably roughly, I'll just say the 80-20 rule, 80% of the problems. 20% are going to be kind of hard. Uh, we do run into those. Those are great for support cases, and we'll figure those out and get that solved for you. Yeah, and I mean, really, there's no excuse for not having some sort of tool in place because the OPM tool is free, and you basically just have to stand up a VM and go at it, right? I mean... Yeah, and uh, Harvest Grafana is free as well. And the interesting thing is Harvest Grafana works uh, for 7Mode. I realize that maybe, you know, that may not be as relevant, but, you know, I do have some customers who are using 7Mode and using Harvest Grafana there, and I've actually used it to go diagnose some of their issues. So, you know, uh, as I said, even in 7Mode, we're uh, you know, we don't have OCI and OPM working quite as well. Uh, OPM doesn't work there at all. You know, there's still an answer to go solve that. So, I mean, honestly, get a performance tool. That's job number one. Make sure you have it. Make sure you can go look at it. Make sure you understand your utilizations and keep yourself inside the guardrails and life will be much happier. You know, go do, do your Stetson Webster every Thursday morning, get a cup of coffee, figure out what adjustments you need to make to balance things, and you'll be a lot, lot happier. Yeah, and I mean, it's not just the up-to-date current data that you want. It's also the archival. I mean, you get to keep several weeks or months of data from this. And if somebody asks you a month later, what happened on, you know, January 1st, why did this go down? You could go back to that archival data and say, oh, well, the CPU was at 80% and the disks look fine. Looks like this workload on this volume is running. Were you running some sort of report? Oh, yeah, we were. Cool. All right. Awesome. That's why. And it takes you no time at all because it's there, and you can't—you don't have to go do root causes without any data. And you know, you don't have to go to support and get the uh, take two perf stats and call me in a morning message and, <laughs> and go through, you know, the complexity of doing that problem. Um, so you know, as I said, I, I for a long time—I mean, I sort of hate to say this—but I felt like I had to apologize for performance tools. But you know, as I said, I use them now. Yeah, they get—they're great now. They really they, are. They are. And if, if you turn on, and also the, the QoS statistics that we keep, right? Mm-hmm. Turning yeah. those on up front, keeping that on is a, another boon for keeping performance data. Well, you know, uh, sort of an interesting comment on that is, you know, for, for a while, people felt like diagnosing C dot systems, C mode systems was much more complicated. Um, uh, but 
I actually found pretty quickly that it had a lot more counters than seven mode, and they become really straightforward to go diagnose things. You're mentioning the QS counters or some of those counters. So, right. You know, the, yeah. the infrastructure in C mode, you know, the normal mode that we have now, uh, to, you know, it is really great, greatly improved. As a matter of fact, you know, when I have to go back and look at a seven mode system, I go, you know, crap, it doesn't have these other counters. Right, there. you're missing them. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot harder issue. Um, and, it, you know, I, I really think sort of where they have the counters, uh, you know, like an 8-3 on, you know, they're just, you know, most of the time it's very easy for me to go find sort of the source of what issues are there. Yeah, and it's going to get even easier as we get more mature with the scale-out file system, the flex groups, because now you can isolate it not just at a node level, but you can start at the cluster level, and that, that's where it really starts to matter. And then if it gets to be a node-level issue, you can start to isolate which nodes are having problems and use your volume moves and QoS there. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's going to be a boon, I think, in the future as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think, uh, you know, I've worked over the years many, many cases with people who push file systems hard, and Flex Group looks like a wonderful a wonderful piece of technology to go help with all of those issues. All right, so some really good discussion here about performance, some questions that I've had over the years, and I already knew the answers to some of them because I worked in support, but I knew that they got asked a lot, so I went ahead and asked them anyway. Uh, Tony was so gracious in answering those in excruciating detail in some cases, which is good. We want that technical detail. So, Tony, thanks a lot for joining us today. Uh, again, how do we reach you? Gaddis at NetApp.com, G-A-D-D-I-S. All right, Tony is the performance guy. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher or via techontechpodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tech podcast team and Tony Gaddis, I'd like to thank you for listening. Glenn. Dude, Glenn. My cool. I'm, I'm, yeah. Are you, are you still with us? I'm, I'm hanging on by a thread. Uh, I, yeah. I'm full. I, I, I am at capacity. I am fully utilized. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't have a performance tool to help me figure that out. Uh, yeah, no, your yeah, my latency. Yeah, my latency. Is this I always have latency oh, problems. Yeah. Uh, just apply beer. That's how you bring it down in here. That's true. It does, it does the work. It actually adds more latency. Yeah. <laughs>